welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today, we're lucky enough to have Kathy Kuntz join us. I've known Kathy for close to 20 years now. I first met her when she was managing a data warehouse platform and customer analytics processes for Office Depot. Uh, from there, she moved on to uh, Nationwide Insurance, where she uh, served as a vice president uh, in the analytics area, helping them build out uh, enhanced uh, customer analytics. She ended up coming to Teradata, uh, where we worked alongside each other for several years, and then we also worked together at the International Institute for Analytics. More recently, she joined Amazon Web Services to help them build out their analytical capabilities and platforms. She's one of those rare people that can fill a wide variety of roles. In fact, as we'll discuss in the interview, she actually has uh, started with a journalism degree, but got interested in analytics and uh, databases and self-taught herself everything she needed to know to rise through the ranks successfully. She also does a lot of volunteering, is just a fun person to hang out with, and I think you're going to really enjoy what she has to say today. So with that, let's welcome Kathy to the show. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, great to be here, Bill. So one thing I find interesting about you and your background, you know, we often talk in the field about how people get into analytics and data science from all sorts of, of different backgrounds, and very few follow the official traditional path. You actually started out with a journalism degree which is by far not the typical path into analytics. So how did you transition from a journalism degree into uh, analytics and data science? Yeah, you know, my my uh, 2020 hindsight answer always is, well, you know, journalists were kind of the original uh, business intelligence folks, right? They took exix- existing information, they reorganized and, and packaged it to help drive uh, understanding or different decisions. Um, Now, uh, I wish I could say my career path was that intentional, but uh, I remember I was working doing media relations for a large teaching hospital. And, you know, one of my favorite bosses of all time used to always tell me, Kathy, you're way too analytical about things. And that was a little bit of a foreshadowing of where I might end up. And, you know, I think it, uh, the way it happened was I was actually doing Uh, marketing and media relations for a large nonprofit uh, based in South Florida. And uh, a lot of our work went through uh, small church newsletters and newspapers. And I worked with the IT director to basically build a a PR CRM system homegrown there at the organization. And when she saw the way I thought about things and approached things, when her manager of... um, uh, donor uh, data left, she asked me if I'd be interested in taking the role. And that was my transition into uh, data and analytics. And it was best decision I've ever made. That's wild. So it was almost you, you stepped above and beyond your job to help make something happen. And next thing you know, it was your job. Yeah. And, and I remember having a conversation with my husband, like, because, uh, you know, I had to manage all this donor data. It was on an AS400. I had zero. I mean, that's that's how long ago it was. I had zero 
technical experience except for a couple of, you know, basic and COBOL programming courses that I took in college. And I was really nervous about taking the role, but my husband, you know, he was like, you're smart, you'll figure it out. You've got somebody who wants you to do it, so take a chance. And I'm glad he encouraged me to do it. That's interesting. I know, I, I think when I very first met you, it was when way back when you were, you were still at Office Depot. And since then, you know, you, you had a path through a couple of client-side organizations, you know, Office Depot, Nationwide, Wells Fargo. You've been, you know, more on the consulting side at times with uh, uh, Teradata, IA, and now at, at AWS. So, you know, obviously, as you work for some of those big companies, uh, there's differences in the ways that they, you know, they they handle things and there's similarities. What are what are some of those key similarities and differences that you found as you've worked and, uh, across multiple organizations? Yeah, you know, I think the one thing, especially for data and analytics professionals to think about in large organizations, especially in regulated industries, is the focus on data security. Uh, you know, a, a, a bank, if they have a, a really horrific data breach, I mean, that, that could be crippling to them uh, and their reputation. And so that focus on data security in large organizations, particularly, you know, financial services ones is, is key. You know, I think the other thing is, um, you know, the, the, diffused decision-making nature of large organizations. I mean, there you just have to bring a lot of people along with you as you're trying to make progress and drive change. And this sense of, you know, I own anything and I'm the final decision maker, I think is, is a little bit of a fallacy that people have. And so just understanding uh, the need to navigate broad groups and influence a broad set of stakeholders to make progress is also a real, you know, common similarity across large organizations. Yeah, to me, that gets to, to, to one of the things I think helped you be successful in that role is I know you, you've always been really good at uh, getting people to come together and, you know, making a case, making people not be threatened as you challenge them. Uh, across, uh, you know, I've seen you in multiple of your roles over the years as a client and as a coworker, and so uh, I think that's an important thing for people to think about. Because in that case, the the fact that you didn't come from explicit technical background initially, though you acquired those skills, it, it, that has nothing to do with what you just talked about, right? That's an entirely different set of uh, of skills. Yeah, you know, I've done some. Uh, I, I have a talk that I've done for data science students that that are getting ready to graduate or early in their careers. And I say, you know, it's the title of it, the, the skills that got you here won't get you there. And it really is about developing those, uh, that ability to network, to influence people, to uh, communicate in a way that is meaningful to the recipient. And those are really the skills that can differentiate somebody who does have that technical background uh, but is looking to have broader influence across an organization. And I think it's something that uh, in, you know, our industry, we may not spend enough time uh, coaching and practicing in, but it can really be a make or break for, uh, you know, somebody in a technical role. Yeah, and it's funny, too. I think I think we everyone pretty much agrees on that today, too, right, which, which I'm not sure that would have been true 20 years ago, but I think uh, people like us all talk about this, but the funny thing is, you know, I've been on both, you know, client consulting side over the years, and now I'm at, at the university side. And the reality is, well, everyone really talks about it. 
I don't think any of any individual companies, consulting firms, or universities are really doing any substantive things to officially help students gather those skills. They, they tell them that they'll need them, but then they go on to their next technical course or they go on to their next project. And uh, it's really more of a self-motivated or viral kind of teaching of each other than it is, you know, explicit programs, which surprises me. It feels like somebody should have come up with yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's probably sprinkling in some of those classes that, you know, from the management consulting firms that they have kind of training up their consultants. Um, many of them have a, an approach and a methodology for that, but it hasn't really been extended over uh, into the technical roles yet. But one really helpful uh, practice that we had at one of the companies where I worked is this culture of feedback and not in a way of, of derogatory or negative, but the way we structured it and anybody was empowered to give feedback to, to another person. So, I mean, I could go up to the CMO after a meeting and just pull him aside and say, you know, give him feedback. And the format that we, we used was, you know, I observed you doing X, it had the effect of Y, you might be more effective if you did Z. And by following that simple format, it, it is a very non-threatening way to give kind of a clinical assessment to, to what somebody did. And that was really helpful when I was uh, coaching data scientists to present in large meetings with, you know, short attention span executives. I would prep them beforehand and we'd role play. But then afterwards, I mean, immediately after the meeting, I'd get with them while the experience was still fresh in their mind and give them that feedback. And uh, if I had observed them, you know, perhaps stumbling in the meeting or something. And I just really recommend that organizations uh, adopt that sort of a culture where anybody can give feedback to anybody else. And it's not just accepted, it's expected. Yeah. You know, what you just said there, I love that even expected. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a survey uh, around, you know, CEOs and the general premise. I actually think I wrote a blog and it's like, is your CEO clueless or being misled? And, uh, and the premise was kind of what you're talking about. And the survey sort of uncovered this. You know, we might have a problem that an analyst finds. It's really bad. And they tell the manager. The manager has to go tell the director. And they sugarcoat it just a little bit because they don't want to look too bad for the manager. Then the director has to tell the VP and sure coach that the bottom line is by the time it gets to the CEO, what might be an almost show-stopping problem becomes there's a little blip we might hit, but it's not much to worry about. And then people wonder, well, why didn't senior management do more? And I think it comes down to what you said. It's not just that, that those senior managers have to be open to that feedback because even if they're open to it, people may be hesitant. They almost have to demand that feedback, right? You almost have to get in trouble if you didn't give them the blunt feedback or else people just won't be comfortable doing it, especially junior people. They don't want to go and say something uh, that they know will be perceived very negatively up the chain, but those are often the most important messages that those people have to hear. Yeah, I, you know, I think that that culture of candor and transparency as well, uh, you know, it's interesting in my my role now, we, you know, we talk a lot about agility and experimentation and innovation. And one of the things I talk to companies a lot is, you know, you have experimentation requires failure. And we've heard this admonition in the industry for so long about, you know, fail fast. If your company doesn't have a culture that celebrates 
uh, experimental failure, as much as it celebrates experimental success, you're not going to have people who want to fail fast because the political capital that it costs you if you have a, an experiment that isn't successful uh, is it can be, you know, career crippling. And so that that culture of candor and transparency and a willingness to say, we're going to try something, we're going to experiment. And if it if it works or if it doesn't work, the knowledge that we create by proving that it does work or it doesn't work is equally as valuable. And until that happens, it's hard to to really create an environment of experimentation. That brings up a, a good segue, I, I think, is that, you know, even back when you first started with Office Depot 20 years ago, really a large part of your role was pushing the limits of scale as it existed at that time. And I mean, and of course, over the years, that's how we got to know each other was in, in discussing how to do that. I know when you went to Nationwide, you, you know, you were helping them push the scale. You came to Teradata when we worked together there in part um, because you wanted to help other companies scale. And of course, at AWS now, uh, that's all about scale. So, you know, you've kind of seen the entire scale challenge evolve over the last couple of decades. What do you think some of the differences are in terms of how we're challenged with scale today versus how it was years back? And are there some ways that really were just back to the future yet again? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, not not to be uh, too pedantic about it, but, you know, it's the cloud. You know, it has really changed those those scale challenges and that, you know, process that we used to have if we wanted to introduce a new uh, business capability, launch a new, uh, you know, personalization model, uh, you had to, you know, get server space and you had to estimate your peak workloads and you had to make sure you have licenses for anybody that, you know, might even touch the system once and you could budget for that. Well, you know, those days are gone now and you can spin up and spin down services and try things. And so the cloud has really fundamentally changed that uh, scale conversation. But what I've observed is that organizations still use a lot of processes and practices that are much more aligned with that old kind of long ramp up to a new capability and not the agility that the cloud allows. So until those processes and approaches are changed around, you know, how uh, how projects are defined, delivered, prioritized, valued, monitored, until those processes changes, change organizations are not going to have that combination of agility and scale that the the cloud allows i mean scale is no problem on the cloud but the the agility to be able to get to that scale quickly uh is really reliant on having uh, the appropriate internal processes to enable that Andre, i guess it's it, it, that's another kind of uh evergreen theme uh, that applies in different ways at different times. The old, well, you have new capabilities in front of you and it's not the lack of the capability. It's that you're trying to use the new capabilities in the, using the same procedures and approaches. You use the old capabilities, thereby, you know, leaving a lot of opportunity on the table because you, you know, you're not maximizing the new, the new capabilities. So uh, that's a, I think that's a great insight in, uh, from you on that. Um, I also know that over time, you've probably spent, at least in the interactions I've had, had, had with you, it seems like you've put a huge focus in, in your career on customer, consumer-related 
uh, analytics. What what is it about that space, the customer consumer side of things, that got your interest in the first place and then held it for all these years? Basically, the unpredictability of these human beings, right? You know, when you're dealing with with you know, like let's say manufacturing process improvement, right? You know, you're not going to have uh, uh, the coating on a semiconductor, you know, decide it's it's not going to respond or it's going to change, right? It's it's much more predictable, and so I really think customer analytics uh, is such a great big data use case where the more data you get. Uh, I mean, you can make such significant leaps and bounds in the uh, ability of, to predict and and direct, you know, the behavior of humans. And it's really about uh, using data and analytics to try to uh, help your your customers, both internal and external, uh, make a better decision through the the analytic products and services you're providing. And so just being able to be a part of that, of, you know, helping a human being make a better decision has always just been fascinating to me. Well, you know, one, one thing that you might be able to give some insight for folks, you know, whether it's a student coming out of school, wondering what path to take in your career or somebody on a path that might want to change, you know, you're one of the people who has done, you know, heavy client side uh, roles over the year and heavy consulting side. What are some of the pros and cons of those two worlds that, that you've experienced personally that, that you could share to maybe help someone know if, uh, which is best for them? Yeah, and you know, I think here's the thing I'll say, like, which is best for somebody? Uh, it depends, right? I do think it is really helpful for people early in their career if they have the opportunity to spend some time on the consulting side because you get such a variety of experiences, um, different, you know, perhaps different industries. You learn how to navigate organizations more quickly. Uh, you can get up to speed much more rapidly, perhaps, than people who've never been in those consulting type roles. So I think. I think it's a best practice to at least do that for a period of time. Now, what I see is that folks who really create a strong attachment and sense of ownership to what they create, who want to be involved throughout the entire life cycle of a project and really want to be there all the way through the end to the launch and the usage and the evolution of the project, those folks struggle sometimes in consulting because, you know, we have defined phases of uh, a life cycle that we're involved in. And those folks oftentimes do better in organizations where they can, uh, you know, have much more um, longer term kind of relationships and ownership of, of the work that they do. So those are, those are some of the differences. I think the other thing too is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, working in large organizations really requires an investment in, you know, building and maintaining your network and and uh, cultivating it over time. Uh, some folks just can find that um, a little bit overwhelming or uh, not enjoyable. And so just kind of thinking about the, the different types of relationships you need to create and maintain your relationship with the work that you're going to have 
um, is, is really key to kind of think about, should I go, should I be in consulting or should I be on the, the client side? But for me, I mean, depending on the opportunity, I, I like to go uh, back and forth. And so I don't think we, you know, it's, it's definitely not a single track that you have to get on and stay on. There, there are always options to pivot. Yeah, I can tell you, you know, on, on that theme, uh, you know, I know somebody here in, in Atlanta, a friend of mine who was at senior roles at a number of companies, been client side for many years. He just got snapped up by a consulting firm because they really value his deep experience in those areas. And similarly, if people pay attention to the news, it's actually much more common than you'd expect that suddenly there's a new SVP or C-level position filled at a major company. And it's somebody that's had years of management consulting experience. And it's in part because they want that that breadth of experience. So, so I agree with you having been on both too. I think really uh, it's not an either or you can mix and match both. And in fact, you know, companies are willing to consider people from the other world, even if you've, you know, spent time there. So, uh, but, but I like the idea of, of, that you mentioned about early starting, you know, maybe starting and, and making sure you get that variety. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, t- I was just coaching. I, well, I just was going to tell you, I was just coaching a friend of mine uh, who um, just graduated from a data science program, and she had an offer from a company and a consulting firm, and I recommended she take the consulting offer at least for, for the first two years just to get that variety of skills and experiences. Let's take a totally random turn here. So one thing I know about you is that you're really big into cycling, doing distance rides, you know, 100 mile plus at a time. And so forth. We've even taken a ride or two together over the years. So what what got you into that? That's not, you know, again, that's just one of those things. There's a lot of people into it, but what got you into it and, and so serious about it uh, even today? Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, my Florida poster in the back, I'm, I'm in Columbus, Ohio now, but I grew up in Florida. And when I lived in Florida, my exercise of choice was doubles beach volleyball. I mean, played from the time I was in high school until I moved to Columbus in 2006. I actually played doubles with my daughter, uh, you know, for many years, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, my my beach volleyball declined in proportion with the decline in the number of beaches when I moved to Ohio, and I needed to find something else. And I'm not, you know, I don't get a lot of satisfaction just kind of going to the gym to work out. I mean, I like to have a little bit more of a social aspect to it as well. Uh, And so my husband was a cyclist. And so he talked me into starting to ride with him. And, you know, our youngest was older at that point in time. So we could go away for three hours at a time, which, you know, cycling is a long time uh, commitment to do distances. But once I got in it, I just loved the the social nature. I mean, we go on group rides and we might ride 100 miles and, you know, average 15 miles an hour. And it's kind of grueling, but it's it's fun to go through that with friends and see the countryside and explore new places. And so, you know, I really like cycling and it's also a really data rich pastime. I mean, you can you can gather so much data and analyze it and some of the tools that they have to you know, track your your effort and your mileage and your heart rate and your, you know, uh, all of these things is really cool. And it's funny, we finish rides and, you know, I have my Garmin and I make sure it gets uploaded. And, you know, some people are like, if you didn't take a picture, it didn't happen. And with my cycling, I'm like, well, if I didn't collect data, it didn't happen. So it really kind of brings together, uh, you know, two of my passions of kind of, you know, social uh, active exercise with uh, data. 
Yeah, I, I love to collect data too. I, I think I told you the story that uh, not long ago, I was really, really pushing myself to hit a certain average speed on this ride. And it required me really pushing the last few miles. And I barely got to that average speed with like just under a quarter mile to go. And when I got to the parking lot, by the time it took me, you know, the 15 or 20 seconds I had to slow down, turn into the parking lot, get to my car, I'm going like one mile an hour. It actually then was just enough to drop me down a tenth of a mile an hour Point average. You know, yeah. yeah. And I was like, no. But uh, that's that's the I downside. Feel your pain. I feel your pain. I've been there myself. So maybe um, uh, one 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 quick one for you uh, would be what what which skill if you picked one of skill or trait you have do you think's been most key in helping you be successful in your career? Well, it's I, I'm I'm going to say two because they're they're interrelated. It's curiosity and problem solving. Uh, you know, it's the ability to look at something and decompose it into where the problem is most likely occurring. And I, I, when I was interviewing folks uh, for my team, when I was uh, two levels above them, I would always take the last interview just to make sure I felt like they would fit with the culture and they had the right mentality to be successful in the group. And for a long time, one of the questions I would use is say, okay, I have a home stereo system. I have four speakers. I have, uh, you know, a, an amplifier unit. And one of the speakers has a, a crackle in it. How would I go about determining where the problem is? And if they could not take that and break it down and say, well, it could be in the speaker. It could be in the wire. It could be in the jack and from the the unit and walk me through that, uh, then I would know maybe they don't have the curiosity and problem solving that really is is required for the types of roles I was hiring. And I, I remember I had one guy say, well, I don't know anything about, about stereo equipment. You know, how am I going to know how to do this? And he got a little indignant with me. And it was interesting because this was a role in financial services and he had no experience in financial services. And I looked at him, I said, well, tell me about your experience in financial services then, because you're going to have to decompose problems in financial services. And he kind of, I saw the light bulb go on over his head and then he kind of rewound and started thinking about it. So it's really that problem solving and curiosity with a, maybe a little bit of a dash of, of, that curiosity, I want to figure it out and I won't really, it's hard for me to give up until I do. I don't really call it competitiveness, but I do like to, to figure things out and it, it bugs me if I can. So the key question, did that gentleman overcome the hole he dug with that initial answer and get the job or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that's what I suspected. Uh, well, hey, I want to thank you so much. I think your insights have been have been terrific today, and and hopefully listeners are gonna are gonna appreciate it. And and as always, it, it's great to to have insights from you. So thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah, always great chatting with you, Bill. And good luck, and have fun with all those uh, bright students at KSU. 